What's the Use of Poetry? by Richard Le Gallienne. From the World's Best Poetry, Volume 7, Descriptive and Narrative, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Craig Franklin. Sonia. Thomas Peter and jason in canada what's the use of poetry and idly tuneful the loquacious throng flutter and twitter prodigal of time and little masters make a toy of song till grave men weary of the sound of rhyme william watson in wordsworth's grave there is no doubt that many one might almost say most people are firmly convinced that they do not care for poetry they have no use for it they tell you either it bores them as a fantastic high-flown method of saying something that to their way of thinking could be better said in plain prose or they look upon it as the sentimental nonsense of the moonstruck and lovesick young a kind of intellectual candy all very well for women and children but of no value to grown men with the serious work of the world on their shoulders it is not at all difficult to account for, and indeed to sympathise with this attitude. To begin with, of course, there is a large class outside our present considerations which does not care for poetry, simply because it does not care for any literature whatsoever. Serious reading of any kind does not enter into its scheme of life. Beyond the newspapers and magazines and an occasional novel of the hour, idly taken up and indifferently put aside, it has no literary needs. With this listless multitude we have not to concern ourselves, but rather with that sufficiently heterogeneous body known as the reading public, the people for whom Mr. Carnegie builds libraries, and the publishers display their wares. Of course, among these, there must necessarily be a considerable percentage temperamentally unappreciative of poetry, just as there are numbers of people born with no ear for music, and numbers, again, born with no colour sense. The lover of poetry is no less born than the poet himself. Yet, as the poet is made as well as born, so is his reader. And there are many who really love poetry without knowing it, but who think they do not care for it, either because they have contracted the wrong notion of what poetry is, or because they have some time or other made a bad start with the wrong kind. I am convinced that one widespread provocative of the prevailing impression of the foolishness of poetry is the mediocre magazine verse of the day. In an age when we go so much to the magazines for our reading, we may rely on finding there the best work being done in every branch of literature except the highest. The best novelists, the best historians, and the best essayists write for the magazines, but the best poets must be looked for in their high-priced volumes, and a magazine reader must rely for his verse on lady amateurs and tuneful college boys. Thus he too often approaches poetry not through the great masters, but through the little misses, and he forms his naturally contemptuous notion of poetry from feeble echoes and insipid imitations. No wonder, therefore, that he should refuse to waste his good eyesight on anything in the shape of verse, and should conceive of poetry as a mild mental dissipation for young ladies, a sickly sweetmeat made of molasses and moonshine. 
if the magazine editors of the world would only bind themselves to publish no verse except the best, and, failing to obtain a contemporary supply of the best, would fill their spare corners of space with reprints of the old fine things, I am convinced that they would do a great deal toward rectifying this widespread misconception of an art which, far from being trivial and superficial, is, of all the arts, the most serious and most vitally human. I am not saying that all poetry is for all readers. There is a section of poetry which has been called Poet's Poetry, which of necessity can appeal only to those in whom the sense of beauty and verbal exquisiteness has become specialised. Spencer and Keats, for example, are poets of the rainbow. For the average reader, their poems are the luxuries rather than the necessities of literature, though in making a distinction so rough and ready it must not be forgotten that beauty, happily, is becoming more and more a general necessity, nor must it be forgotten either that rainbows, refined and remote as they are, belong also to the realities. It is the reality of poetry that I wish, if possible, to bring home to readers in this article. Some flowers, says George Meredith, have roots deep as oaks. Poetry is one of those flowers, and, instead of its being a superficial decoration of life, it is, rightly understood, the organic expression of life's deepest meaning. The essence in words of human dreams and human action. It is the truth of life told beautifully, and yet truthfully. There is only one basis for the longevity of human forms. That basis is reality. No other form of human expression has continued with such persistent survival from the beginning until now as poetry. From the Iliad to the absent-minded beggar, it and the wild flowers, for all their adventurous fragility, are as old and no less stable than the hills, and for the same reason, because they are no less real. The world is apt to credit prose with a greater reality than poetry, but the truth is that the prose of life is real only in proportion as it is vitalised by the spirit of poetry that breathes in all created things. Life exacts practical reasons for the survival of all its forms of expression, and, unless poetry served some practical purpose of existence, it would long since have perished. It is because poetry has a practical work to do in the world that it continues, and will continue to exist, because it is one of the motive forces of the universe. Life's motive meaning, one might almost say, the nerve force of existence. A great man has defined it as the finest spirit of all knowledge, and the phrase, though limited, may help us to a broader and deeper apprehension of poetry, and help us to say, too, that poetry is the finest spirit of all impulse, the finer meaning of all achievement. There is no human interest desiring to be displayed in all its essential vividness that does not realise the value of a poetical expression. Those who would depreciate the power of poetry in the sternest practical affairs have only to be reminded how much modern imperialism owes to Rudyard Kipling. And it is by no means trivial to remark that the most successful advertisements have been in verse. So soon as poetry, so-called, really is poetry, 
its appeal is immediately admitted and its force undeniably felt it is the false poets who account for the false ideas of poetry one has only to confront a practical man with the real thing to convince him that without realizing it he has cared a great deal about poetry all his life probably he has imagined that this great stumbling block has been the verse why not say it in plain english he has impatiently exclaimed thinking all the time of bad verse of lifeless contorted rhyming and of those metrical inanities of the magazines and yet when you bring him a verse that is really alive in which the meter is felt to be the very life-beat of the thought you don't find him asking to have it turned into prose how about mandalay in prose for example or that old bugle call of scots sound sound the clarion fill the fife to all the sensual world proclaim one crowded hour of glorious life is worth an age without a name or tennyson's tears idle tears or coleridge's he prayeth best who loveth best all things both great and small for the dear god who loveth us he made and loveth all or the quality of mercy is not strained or under the greenwood tree or mr swinburne's ask nothing more of me sweet all i can give you i give heart of my heart were it more more would be laid at your feet love that should help you to live song that should spur you to soar in all these cases the verse is immediately felt to be the very life of the expression for the reason that it echoes in words the life rhythms to which unconsciously all such human emotions keep time say it in prose can you say a trumpet in prose or a tear or a butterfly if you can your prose is really poetry and will be found to be eloquent with sunken rhythms not immediately obvious to the ear and eye the first thing to realize about poetry is that the meter is the meaning even more than the words in tennyson's sad tears idle tears for example it is not so much the words that are accountable for the wistful sorrow of the general effect as the sad rain-like melody mysteriously charging the words with sorrow like some beautiful interpretative voice and it is this subtly mimetic quality endlessly adaptable which is the raison d'être of metre and the secret of its power over mankind perhaps it may help us to attempt here a definition of poetry though it is a bold even foolhardy thing to do for there has never yet been a definition of poetry that satisfied any one but the man who made it we may recall one fashionable in its day matthew arnold's poetry is a criticism of life that a poet should have made such a harrowing definition is amazing though one of course understands it in the light of the fact that the inspiration of matthew arnold's muse was almost entirely that of a philosophical criticism of life far from being a criticism of life poetry is much more like a recreation of it it is life in words but let me timidly launch my own definition poetry is that impassioned arrangement of words whether in verse or prose 
which embodies the exaltation the beauty the rhythm and the pathetic truth of life there is a motive idealism behind all human action of which most of us are unconscious or to which we ordinarily give but little thought a romance of impulse which is the real significance of human effort the walls of thebes were built to music according to the old story but so were the walls of every other city that has ever been built the skyscrapers of new york are soaring to music also a masterful music of the future which not all can hear and of which perhaps the music-makers themselves are most ignorant of all once more in emerson's immortal phrase the builders are building better than they know these ruthless speculators and stern businessmen who are the last to suspect themselves of the poetry which they involuntarily serve human life in the main is thus unconsciously poetical and moves to immortal measures of a mysterious spiritual music it is this impassioned exaltation this strange rhythm this spiritual beauty the finer spirit of life which the poet seizes on and expresses and therewith also that pathos which seems to inhere in all created things we read him because he gives that value of life which we feel belongs to it but for which we are unable to find the words ourselves how often one has heard people say on reading a poem why that is just what i have always felt but could never express and the exclamation was obviously a recognition of the truth of the poem the poet had made a true observation and recorded it with all the vividness of truth it is the business of the poet to be all the time thus recording and recreating life in all its manifestations not only for those who already possess something of the poetic vision yet lack the poetic utterance but also for those who need to be awakened to the ideal meanings and issues of life poetry is thus seen to be a kind of lay religion revealing and interpreting the varied beauty and nobility of life but a better way than theorizing to show the use the sweet uses of poetry is to call up the names of some of the great poets and ponder what they have meant and still mean in the life of humanity dante milton and wordsworth for example and to them we might add tennyson browning and matthew arnold how much these six poets alone have meant to the graver life of humanity the life of religion of thought of conduct particularly with regard to the four poets of the last century we are compelled to note how far more than any professed teachers and thinkers they were the teachers and thinkers of their age and did indeed mould the thought of their century for how many have wordsworth's prelude tennyson's in memoriam browning's rabbi ben ezra and matthew arnold's empedocles been literally sacred books books of daily exercise and meditation to name only a few of their more typical poems they are well worn today but think what forces in the world these lines of wordsworth have been the world is too much with us late and soon getting and spending we lay waste our powers little we see in nature that is ours we have given our hearts away a sordid boon tennyson says a god in nature than at strife that nature lends such evil dreams so careful of the type she seems so careless of the single life that i 
considering everywhere her secret meaning in her deeds and finding that of fifty seeds she often brings but one to bear i falter where i firmly trod and falling with my weight of cares upon the great world's altar stairs that slope through darkness up to god i stretch lame hands of faith and grope and gather dust and chaff and call to what i feel is lord of all and faintly trust the larger hope i quote this from matthew arnold it is so small a thing to have enjoyed the sun to have lived light in the spring to have loved to have thought to have done to have advanced true friends and beat down baffling foes that we must feign a bliss of doubtful future date and while we dream on this lose all our present state and relegate to worlds yet distant our repose these lines and many more like them that one could quote have done definite spiritual service for mankind have inspired countless men and women with new faith new hope and new fortitude and will remain permanent springs of sustenance for the human spirit again the mere mention of such names as goethe byron and shelley carries with it their tremendous significance in the practical life of the modern world when we think of such figures as occur over and over again in the history of poetry we realize that tennyson's one poor poet's scroll that shook the world was no mere boyish inflation of the poet's mission that sad musical poet arthur o'shaughnessy said no more than the truth when he sang in verse like the motion of moonlight on water we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams wandering by lone sea breakers and sitting by desolate streams world losers and world forsakers on whom the pale moon gleams yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever it seems to realize what a sheerly political force poetry has been in america alone one has only to recall the poems of whittier and lowell poe and longfellow and julia ward howe's immortal battle hymn of the republic but apart from such strenuous and stern services how many other services no less valuable has poetry rendered to mankind services of joy and universal sympathy the poet often so sad himself sings all men's joys and sorrows as if they were his own and there is nothing that can happen to us nothing we can experience no stroke of fate and no mood of heart or mind that we cannot find expressed and interpreted for us somewhere in some poet's book take but one poet robert burns for instance and think of the immense addition to the sum total of human pleasure and human consolation that his handful of scotch songs has made who asks what's the use of poetry when he joins in old lang syne and feels his heart stirred to its tearful depths with the sentiment of human brotherhood and the almost tragic dearness of friends and who that has ever been in love has not once in his life felt the brotherly hand of a fellow experience in had we never loved say kindly had we never loved say blindly never met or never parted we had ne'er been broken-hearted and been consoled somehow with that mysterious consolation which belongs to the perfect expression of sorrow if the simple songs of a scotch peasant have been of so much use to the world what of that lordly pleasure-house of shakespeare 
think of the boundless universe of mere delight that has written over its door the works of shakespeare the laughter the wisdom the beauty the all-comprehending humanity if it be of no use to make men happy to quicken in them the joy of life to heighten their pleasures to dry their tears to bind up their wounds if it be of no use to teach them wisdom to open their eyes to purify and direct their spirits to gird them to fight to brace them to endure to teach them to be gentle then indeed we may ask what's the use of poetry but while poetry can do all these things i think it must be allowed by the most practical that it has a very important part to play in the work of the world to end as i began with that practical man who imagines that he does not care for poetry i gave one or two explanations of his distaste but there is one other important one that must not be forgotten he begins too often with paradise lost i mean that he too often attempts some tough classic before he is ready for it and because he cannot read milton with pleasure imagines that he does not care for poetry at all thus he finds himself bewildered by the insipid magazine muses on the one hand and the unscalable immortals on the other too many make the famous mr boffin's mistake of beginning the study of english literature with gibbon's decline and fall and what wonder if a man beginning the study of english poetry with browning's sordello should imagine like douglas gerald in the story either that his mind was failing him or that there was something radically wrong with the poet actually a man may love poetry very deeply and care nothing at all for paradise lost he may also find nothing for him in homer or aeschylus or dante or goethe the great architectural works of such masters may seem too godlike and grim for his gentler human need but give him a handful of violets from ophelia's grave or a bunch of herrick's daffodils or take him out under the sky where shelley's lark is singing or try him with a lyric of heinz or some ballad of uh, old unhappy far-off things and battles long ago and you will see whether or not he loves poetry the mistake is in thinking that all poetry is for all readers on the contrary the realm of poetry is as wide as the world for the very reason that each man may find there just what he needs and leave the rest the thing is to discover that poetry that was meant for us and perhaps the best way to do that is to turn over the pages of some well-made selection and see where our eyes yet caught and held palgrave's golden treasury is of course the classical anthology a little volume filled with the purest gold of english lyrical poetry footnote the golden treasury when it was published more than forty years ago was certainly the finest anthology that had been made in england and it still holds its place as a very choice collection of british poets small and select End of footnote. if a man should read in that for an hour and find nothing to his taste it is to be feared that he was born deaf to the sweet rippling of the pierian spring but 
as i have said i believe that few have been so hardly treated by nature a poet died young in every one of us said someone i think he did not so much die as fall asleep nor is he so fast asleep but that the right song sung right would awaken him what is the use of poetry it is just the whole use of living and let anyone who doubts it enter the garden for himself i come ye hither to this pleasant land for here in truth are vines of engadi here golden urns of manna to thy hand and rocks whence honey flows deliciously udders from which comes frothing copiously the milk of life ears filled with sweetest grains and fig-trees knowing no sterility here paradisal streams make rich the plains oh come and bathe therein ye world-worn weary swains richard lee gallienne end of what's the use of poetry by richard lee gallienne this recording is in the public domain